Growing up, one of my favorite things to start off the week that would kick off our week was always our Sunday after church dinners. And there were two reasons that made it especially fun. Uh, one, I enjoyed sitting and just talking about the things that we had heard in church. And sometimes that was talking in ways that were um, edifying and like, this was cool, or what did you think of this? Sometimes it was to give my dad a hard time. Like, you know, he would preach on something and we would decide, all right, how can we twist what he said and make it completely the opposite of what he intended for us to get out of it? And we usually chose to do that on days when there was somebody with us for lunch. Like he'd invite, you know, a new family over or a missionary over and we gave him a really hard time on those days. But it was fun. So why do I tell you that story to kick things off? Because here is your warning, parents, you're going to have some interesting dinner conversations today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to sort of set the stage for you by recalling where we have been in the book of 1 Corinthians and where we are going with the book of 1 Corinthians. This will actually be our last sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for, well, in 1 Corinthians for quite a while, uh, because we're going to go into Easter and some other things with that. But recall that the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians really dealt with this contrast, this contrast between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. Paul focuses on the difference between the ways of man and the ways of God. Paul focuses on our need to be in God's word and use God's word as our source of authority as opposed to man's wisdom. In chapter 5, Paul shifted gears a little bit. And he started addressing some specific problems that happened in the church. If you look at, you probably have headings in chapter 5. Chapter 5 dealt with this case of incest. Chapter 6, in the first half, dealt with this case of lawsuits. And then the second half of chapter 6 deals with this issue of sexual immorality. And I think this is fitting for this to be something that Paul writes in a book that's about man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. If you take a biblical view of sexual morality or sexual immorality, you are going to be called unenlightened. You are going to be called esoteric. You're going to be told that your views are no longer fitting in a modern society. Remember what the Apostle Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians. God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. There's nothing new under the sun. God's wisdom still applies for us today. So as we dig into God's wisdom when it comes to human sexuality, understand, this is the God of the universe. He knows better than even our enlightened society. Let's read chapter 6, starting in verse 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. As we dig into this chapter, the first thing that I want to say is that the problems that the Corinthians faced, the problems of sexual morality that the Corinthians were dealing with are real human problems. It is an issue that people deal with, and you may have a past. That's the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ is that Jesus says your past can be irrelevant. He doesn't say your past is irrelevant. He says your past can be irrelevant. If you accept Jesus as your personal savior, if you accept his payment for your sins, then your past is irrelevant. Talk about hard things, hard situations of sin. Christ offers complete and total forgiveness. Let's look, though, at the major argument that the Apostle Paul is making is this argument that the rights of a Christian must always be viewed through a theological lens. The rights of a Christian must always be viewed through a theological lens. We live in a culture, in a country where we like to talk about our rights, right? We, we have a document called the Bill of Rights, and then we have all sorts of other rights that we derive from the Bill of Rights. We like to talk about our freedoms and our rights. And I am thankful to God that I live in a country where we have freedom and rights. But we can never look at those rights through anything other than a theological lens. We must look at our light, rights through a theological lens. In the city of Corinth, they had some sayings. You know, they had certain rights, certain cultural privileges. And they came up with some, what I would call, pithy sayings. These are sayings that are generally true. They kind of make sense. They talk about a wider truth. They're sort of like a proverb. And so the first sort of saying that they had, the pithy statement that they had, was, I have the right to do anything. And this may have been coming from the notion of grace. You see, Jesus died on the cross, and he paid for my sins. Because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am guaranteed eternal life with Jesus. That is off the table. It's done. It is satisfied because of that decision. And so you might say, well, I've done that too. What that means is that nothing that I do from here on out could ever take away my eternal life. And the answer is, that's right. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, Nothing you do from this point forward could ever endanger your eternal life. That's eternal security. We are eternally secure in Christ. And so the Corinthians took this a step further. It sounds like from the text. And they said, that means we can do whatever we want. 
Let's have the party. The Apostle Paul says, you say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Yes, you, you can take that to logical conclusion, but that doesn't mean it's beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but don't be mastered by something else. Don't be a slave to something else. You see, filthy statements, while powerful, only tell half the story. This is the problem with general statements, is they miss the nuance. Nuance matters. Yes, grace is important. Grace is huge. Grace is what gives me eternal life. But grace is not an excuse to sin. For the Christian, our freedom that comes from grace is not a freedom to do anything we want. No. Our freedom is a freedom for others, a freedom to serve others, a freedom to grow with others, to encourage others to grow. Paul actually uses a wordplay. If you look at his two statements, he says, the Corinthians are saying, I have the right to do anything. And then he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, that's how our NIV translates it. Uh, It's a good translation, but it's actually missing uh, the wordplay that's going on. So in the Greek, there's actually some wordplay. If we were to try to capture the wordplay, what I might say, and it's hard English, this is why we don't do it. Um, I have the right to do anything, but I won't give my right of control to something. I have the right to do anything, but I won't give my right of control to something else. I won't be a slave to my rights. That's what Paul's really saying here. Now, I want you to think about it. How many people do you know who are actually slaves to their rights? Do you have the right to go home and smoke a cigarette? Yes. Are you a slave to the tobacco product? Ask yourself. Do you have the right to go home and have an alcoholic beverage? Yes. Are you a slave to that alcohol? Do you have the right to go home and gorge yourself on food? Yes. Are you a slave to your stomach? Do you have the right to go home and get on Facebook? Yeah. Are you a slave to Facebook? The Apostle Paul is making a really strong point here. We do have rights, things that we can go do, but don't be a slave. In exercising your rights, you can often become a slave. Paul comes up with another another statement or uses another statement. The Corinthians, it seems like we're saying this statement, food's for the stomach and the stomach is for food and God will destroy them both. So we have to interpret this statement in context and make sense of this. Probably what the Corinthians were saying is, God made my stomach for consuming food and he made food for going into my stomach God made my sexual organs for having sex, and he made sex for my sexual organs. So just like I consume food, I should just go have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. That's the implication that's going on here in 1 Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. 
but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here statements, while powerful, may only tell half the story. Why? Because we belong to God. God is creator and redeemer. Generalizations don't work. The Corinthians were generalizing statements, making wide statements, and they don't work. Why? Because God is the one who has authority. Let me make it just a little bit more applicable. We live in a society that says, since God made me this way and this is how I feel, it must be right. That's what our society says. This flies in the face of what Paul has to say. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You were created not to consume. You were created for God. You were not created to consume, whether that be food, whether that be drugs, whether that be any other number of things. You were created for God, and that should be your primary focus. God, as creator and redeemer, has the first right of claim over our bodies. So that's kind of more of a legal term. If you uh, go get a mortgage on a house or something, banks have a claim on your house. You don't get to just go do whatever you want. God has a claim over us. He bought us through Christ on the cross. So let me give you an action set. My action step for you is never exercise your rights without first looking at them through the lens of theology. Never exercise your rights without first looking at them through the lens of theology. What does this mean? When you are looking at what you are about to do and you say, is this something that I'm allowed to do? That's a good first question. I don't want to diminish that, right? You, you shouldn't take actions that are illegal. Okay, but you look at it and you say, I'm allowed to do this. That doesn't mean you should go do it. You should look at it through the lens of theology. Is this edifying? That's what Paul says the first time. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Is this actually edifying to my position as bought by Christ? But as we move on in verses 15 through 17, what I see next is that every action, the actions of a Christian must be considered through a theological lens. Everything we do needs to be filtered through our theological lens as we ask ourselves, is this what God would have me do? First of all, in verse 14, what I see is that we need to recognize the eternality of people. We need to recognize the eternality of people. 14 says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. We are eternal in the sense that life doesn't end at death. It doesn't all just go away. The philosophy that says enjoy life while you can is a false philosophy because the things that we do, do matter. Because life is eternal, there are eternal significance to our actions. 2 Corinthians 5.10. If you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians 
is a significant verse. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We are eternally secure. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are guaranteed to be in heaven. But we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the place of reward, the place of blessing, so that we may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There is an eternality to our actions because of God's reward for us. Yes, our eternal security is secure. We are guaranteed heaven if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But there is more. There is more to come. We're not merely souls trapped in a physical body awaiting freedom where everything just disappears in the past. No. That's actually a form of Gnosticism or dualism. It's an early heresy. Reject that idea. We are not just souls in a physical body waiting for the time when the physical is all gone. No, we were created physical. God's going to restore us with a glorified physical body and reward us for things that we have done here on earth. The physical is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The physical is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The Corinthians have fallen into a trap. The trap seems to be, they said, all of this stuff that's physical, and in particular here, sexuality, just go enjoy it because it doesn't matter in eternity because the physical doesn't matter. That's a trap. The physical does matter, and it's not just that the physical matters, but there's a, a deeper theological reality that Paul addresses here in verse 15, and that is that as a Christian, you bring Christ with you in everything you do. As a Christian, you bring Christ with you in everything you do. You make Christ a party to your actions. Why is that the case? Because the New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit indwells us. The New Testament teaches us of the body of Christ, that we are joined together with Christ in the body of Christ. There's 11 different times that the, Paul, that, sorry, the Apostle Paul writes about the body of Christ as a community of believers. Paul writes about that 11 different times. It's a significant construct that he uses. Romans 12, verses 4 through 5 says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul's making an argument here. You bring Christ with you in your actions. In verse 15, he makes that really quite strong. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Paul is literally saying, when you engage in sin you are bringing Christ with you. Think about that for just a second. That makes my sin 
a lot more disgusting to me. I hope it does to you. When we engage in sin, we are bringing Christ along with us. Verse 16 gets us into what I would call a theology of sex. And you may think, what in the world? A theology of sex? Yes. We talk about it in every other environment. We don't talk about it in the church. We need to change that. Okay? Sex is more than just a physical act. There is a theology of sex, a reason God created it, a way in which God created it. In Genesis 2.24, God said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul makes a really strong argument. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. All the way back in Genesis, God established sex between a husband and a wife. God established that as a marital bond. And the Apostle Paul interprets that for us here in verse 16. What he says is that the two becoming one flesh is symbolized in the act of sex. The act of sex takes the two and combines them as one flesh. That is significant. What that is telling us is that there is a union there that takes place that we cannot diminish. There is no such thing as casual sex. We know this. We know this theologically. The two become one flesh. We know this in general world, just general knowledge. There is a bond that is formed through the act of sex that is an important physical bond that's formed between people. The Bible tells us it's more than just physical. It is a spiritual bond that is formed. God's design for sex was an act of complete commitment whereby what was one flesh, remember, Eve was taken out of Adam, right? Eve was created from Adam's rib. So what was one flesh, Adam and Eve were at one point one flesh, is reunited as one flesh before God. God's model for sex is important. It's more than just a physical act. The Apostle Paul says it has significance. What's more is Paul goes on and he says, sex has significance. But as a Christian, your foundation is your union with Christ. And so this is where the argument gets really, really strong. Verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. When we are united with God in salvation, we commit to being one with God. If we then take that commitment and we engage in casual sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, we are taking that union with God and we're destroying the image with sin. That's the argument that Paul is making. As Christians, we can't forget that our foundation 
is in union with Christ. And so we're bringing Christ along in everything we do. When we engage in sin, we're bringing Christ along. Have you all seen the WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? Okay, those are great. It's a great, great mnemonic, great way of, of remembering what would Jesus do, but I think that it just scratches the surface. Instead of what would Jesus do, I think we need to ask the question, how would Jesus feel? How would Jesus feel? Because I'm bringing him with me in this. How does he feel about the fact that I'm bringing him into this environment? How does he feel about the fact that I am taking him with me in my sin? What would Jesus feel? Develop a habit of asking, not just what would Jesus do, but how does Jesus feel? That is key for us growing in Christ-likeness. All right, let's move on to verses 18 through 20. In 18 through 20, I see the point, the emphasis, that the purity of a Christian must be made a priority. This matters. Our purity matters. Why? Because, one, sexual sin is particularly destructive, and the appropriate response is to flee. So here's something interesting. James 4, 7. You may have it memorized. Awana especially may have it memorized. It says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A general statement. In general, we are to resist the devil, to fight back against it. But the model, the rule that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, is not to resist sexual immorality. I find it interesting that that's not what he says. He doesn't say resist sexual immorality. He says flee sexual immorality. The way we handle this particular sin, because it is so destructive and so insidious, is to turn tail and run. I think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Remember back to the story in Genesis. Joseph, working in the house, encounters Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife is very attracted to Joseph and begins making moves on Joseph. Joseph's response ultimately when it reaches that key point where he is going to need to make a decision whether to pursue and allow sin to happen or whether to stop and not allow sin to happen, Joseph's response is to get out, flee, get away. I contrast that with David on his balcony seeing Bathsheba. Instead of fleeing, when I read the text, the impression I get is he just continues to watch and to allow it to fester. Maybe for a while he resisted, but slowly the sin of sexual immorality broke down his protections. In the case of sexual temptation, the answer is to get away. Remove yourself from the situation. Remove the apps from your phone. Give your phone to your spouse, to your parents, to someone that you trust. 
If you're in a work environment where the sexual temptation is strong, you might want to find a different job. I know that that sounds really extreme, but do not allow those temptations to take over. Don't defiantly hold your ground, turn your tail, and run. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, you might think, what do you mean all other sins are outside of your body? What, what are we... Surely there's other sins that occur inside your body. Here's what I think Paul is trying to make the argument. God made you for a purpose to bring him glory. Sexual sin in particular destroys that purpose because you are using your body for a purpose that is completely contrary to God. Sexual sin literally takes the body that belongs to God and says, I'm going to give this body over to sin in an act that violates my covenant with my spouse or with my future spouse, that violates my covenant and hence violates God's covenant with us. You see, marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. When we destroy marriage, we destroy a picture that God painted. That's significant. Verse 19 is another beautiful verse that you may have memorized. The key is that the body of the Christian has been set apart for a special purpose as the temple. You might recall that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we also talked about the temple of the Lord. And what we talked about there was that the church corporate meeting together forms the temple of the Lord. And that is the case. But it's not just the church corporate that forms the temple of the Lord. It is us individually who are also the temple of the Lord because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. It's interesting, the grammar in the Greek is different, distinctly different in 1 Corinthians 3.16 than it is here in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul is actually saying both and. We are corporately, as a body of Christ, the temple of the Lord. We are individually, as vessels that the Holy Spirit indwells, the temple of the Lord. Your body is not your own. It belongs to God and it has a purpose. So nothing you do should violate that purpose. Since it doesn't belong to you, you treat it with special care. So I got to thinking about that idea. Have you ever um, rented a car? How do you drive a rental car? (laughs) More carefully, I hope. I, I know for me, if I'm driving a rental car, it's pedal to the metal. If I'm driving my car, I try to treat it fairly well. If I'm driving a friend's car, I'm very careful. I do not want to damage my friend's car. We should have that attitude towards our bodies. They're not ours. They're God's. And we have a relationship with God. So we should treat it not as our own, Yes, I do take care of my car, but as my friend's car, where I really take special care. So let me put this into an action step. This was a you know, pretty strong 
sermon in terms of like things that I told you and like statements that you need to do. Let's make it an action step though. Why don't you take a second, pray, and ask God to help you pursue sexual purity. Band, don't get up yet. I've got another action step after this. But for all of us right now, let's take a moment and pray and ask God to help us pursue sexual purity. Go for it. I have another action step for you as you're wrapping up your prayer. Don't do it alone. Don't go it alone. Place yourself in relationships that will encourage you to pursue Christ-likeness. The specific issue that the Corinthians were dealing with here, so the issue of the text was sexual purity. We can't get around that. My commitment is to preach the word of God. I will preach what's in the text, regardless of what it says. I'll preach it. But I want you to generalize this just a little bit. Maybe your struggle is not with sexual purity, but with some other area of sin where you've allowed your freedom to become your master. Instead of Christ being your master, there's another area of sin or of life that has become a master to the point of it being sin. How do we get around this? Whether it's sexual purity or some other area, we place ourselves in relationships that encourage us to pursue Christ-likeness. So, to that end, I'd actually like to ask Jason Downs to come up, and he's going to talk about one of the opportunities that we have for relationships. So, Jason, I'll let you come on up. Well, anyways, um, once again, I'm Jason Downs, and I was going to talk with you a little bit about home groups. So, uh, we have a home group that meets Sunday evenings, or I should say most Sunday evenings, um, in southeast Lincoln. And so what we do is we uh, have time of being able just to fellowship together, uh, pray together, and take a particular type of scripture and really just kind of dissect it. Um, but I guess most of all, what I really want to talk about is uh, just being able to get together, have those relationships, being able to look to others when you're in that time of need, pray together, live together, just be able to know that you have people that you can turn to. And so I would certainly encourage you to be able to uh, sign up for a home group, get together with people, and be able to um, be able to let them know what's going on in your lives. Because we're certainly not... We're not people to be able to do this alone. One other thing that I will just also mention here um, before I wrap up here is um, I have a table out in the foyer here uh, where I'm trying to sign up guys to be able to get together to be able to go to uh, the spring game, and that's coming up here April 22nd. We're hoping to be able to get a bunch of guys together, go have some fun, watch some football, and just have a good time. So if you'd like to do something like that, please uh, look me up out there. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Relationships matter, and they help us have the victories. God intended us to live in relationship. 
Um, at the information counter, we're gonna have lists of some of the different home groups that you can join. We are at a point where we almost have a home group meeting every night of the week, so there's no excuse. Um, you can be part of, of one of these groups. We've got Sunday school classes. Join with us, enter into those relationships. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your standard. That in your wisdom, you created us and gave then a standard for us to aim towards. Knowing where we would struggle, you still hold us to that standard. Because you look for us to be holy, like you. Father, I pray that we would not allow our sense of freedom to enslave us to sin. That we would look at our actions through a theological lens. That we would recognize that you have bought us and made us your temple. I pray that we would pursue relationships that we might grow closer to you and hold ourselves accountable to each other. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.